675. Warning. Access restricted. Please submit to DNA. Verification. Processing. Verification complete. Access granted. Welcome. Hello, and welcome to the Monitor Room at the Christian Geek Central Podcast, a biblical examination and celebration of geekery and geek entertainment, as well as the official podcast of ChristianGeekCentral.com. I'm Peter Franson from Spirit Blade Productions, producing entertainment and resources to hopefully equip, encourage, and inspire Christian geeks like you and me to live in the freedom and purpose that Christ has given us. For more information about Spirit Blade Productions, you can check out Patreon.com slash Spirit Blade Productions. On the show today reviews of the green knight halloween kills and the action rpg juan yuan sword seven what a name uh also a christian fiction book review roundup from lorehaven and some practical thoughts from philippians on how we can experience peace from god plus more assorted topics based on your questions feedback and my geek week you can check out those timestamps for more details here we go at last, the power of the dragon amulet is mine. It overwhelms your feeble defenses. You will now agree with all of my opinions and everything, everything I say, even if it sounds stupid and wrong. <laughs> The Green Knight. The synopsis on IMDb reads, an epic fantasy adventure. Mm, epic adventure. I don't know. Depends on what how you use those words usually. Based on the timeless Arthurian legend, The Green Knight tells the story of Sir Gawain. G Gawain. Some people said it a little differently than others. Uh, King Arthur's reckless and headstrong nephew who embarks on a daring quest to confront the eponymous Green Knight. A gigantic emerald skinned. I didn't think he was emerald skinned. Uh, stranger and tester of men. Gawain contends with ghosts, giants, thieves, and schemers in what becomes a deeper journey to define his character and prove his worth in the eyes of his family and kingdom by facing the ultimate challenger. From visionary filmmaker David Lowry comes a fresh and bold spin on a classic tale from the Knights of the Round Table. Uh, okay, so what is this animal? Well, it has that classic almost fairy tale vibe where despite taking place in our world, there's certainly references to Christianity, um, there, but there's also, you know, fantastical things like knights made of tree bark that are treated as though expected and as though they require no explanation so it has that kind of fairy tale vibe where they're just like it's weird you're going to run into talking animals and no one's going to bat an eye about it they're just going to accept it as part of what's happening to them and they're not going to psychologically freak out so but even though it has that fairy tale kind of uh, logic to it it is very earthy it's very grounded uh, especially like in the uh, the, the makeup designs and stuff. I mean, even the king and queen had like circles under their eyes and like teeth that were bad and stuff. It's like, I felt like I was in this primitive uh, period in history. So uh, it's interesting how they juxtapose those two kinds of uh, approaches. It's very much a story about an irresponsible man who wants to have the honor and title of a knight, but who doesn't have or truly understand the virtues.
virtues that define a knight, at least according to Arthurian legend. And so he embarks on a quest with one with a final goal that he knows will require bravery and self-sacrifice. And along the way, he sort of episodically encounters these unusual characters and situations that in some way test his virtue. The pace is fairly slow. That's important to know going in. It's a movie that seems more interested in creating mood and ambiance than advancing the story. It, I think it could easily be a 90-minute movie um, and have the exact same story, probably all the same dialogue, but at over two hours, it requires viewers who are ready to just sit in a presented mood and just kind of marinate and let that mood be presented to them much of the time. Uh, now and then, it also seems to possibly be getting at something deeper thematically, but isn't upfront enough for me to know what that might be. Um, one example would be, this is just one example, uh, a long shot on the Green Knight's face that seems to show it very subtly changing. You have to really pay attention, changing back and forth between its normal appearance and something that's somewhat more human, but not all the way human. Um, and not identifiably to me, any of the human characters seen early in the, earlier in the movie. So I'm thinking, why was this done? Does this, is this saying something about the nature of the Green Knight? Is this foreshadowing something else? I have no idea. And I felt like there were many moments like this throughout the movie. We're like, I think there's something symbolic going on here, but uh, it's not upfront enough. It's not clear enough for me to know what the director uh, is getting at. So in this respect, it seems to be, I, I would kind of describe it as the Leviticus of fantasy movies. Now, the book of Leviticus is a book of the Bible that goes into, into deep, deep, deep detail about the ceremonial law given to ancient Israel. Painstaking detail about different laws, offerings, cleansing required for various situations, punishments for various sins, celebrations to take place in different seasons and situations, on and on. Most people skip reading it because it's weird, slow, and boring. But if you realize that Leviticus is not a book for merely reading, but instead for studying, for asking questions, and researching answers, then as your understanding grows, Leviticus becomes this beautiful book about who God is, making his love for us all the more shocking and incredible. Now, I can go to that kind of place once in a while with entertainment, but I really wish there was a this is like Leviticus label for those types of entertainment experiences so I can wait and invest time in those kinds of experiences when I'm actually ready to give what's required above and beyond just watching in order to really dive into them. Uh, as it was today... After 55 minutes of watching this over two-hour movie, seeing lots of long mood-setting shots and strange, likely maybe, symbolic events, I was ready to move on or for things to, to pick up the pace. It's not that I needed more action. The movie has almost none to speak of, and that's fine. But today, I, I just wasn't really up for the deep dive of research into color palettes or whatever symbolic code the director was using to express his ideas. Uh, now, as far as the cast goes, I have no complaints about the casting or acting. Uh, in fact, Dev Patel as Gawain helped me stay invested throughout the movie. Um, he was expressing fear and doubt and uncertainty, and I, I could certainly relate to that kind of character. Um, and Sean Harris, known for playing villainous or unsympathetic 
sympathetic characters in most movies that he's in, was surprisingly warm and familial, and I really appreciated his part in bookending the experience. So really, uh, I thought the performances in this movie were really nice. Uh, as far as visuals, there aren't a ton of visual effects. Um, I mean, well, I mean, they're pretty frequent, but they're kept pretty subtle. Uh, they 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 serve their purpose fine the world design and composition of shots i think are the most striking visual elements to me uh, the design of the green knight character takes what could be a silly concept on paper and makes him seem otherworldly and mysterious and dangerous you know um and so many moments of this movie i think would look really great hanging on a canvas somewhere which is maybe why the director indulged in long shots so frequently uh, now, as far as themes, is there anything of moral, philosophical, or spiritual significance in the themes of this thing that might trigger some worthwhile thought or conversation? Well, like I said before, it's pretty front and center with kind of its, its uh, moralizing. Um, the long and short of the moral theme, I think, is that Gawain wants to be honorable or perhaps more truthfully to be honored and wants to take the shortest route to that possible instead of truly developing honorable character traits. There's also an interesting moment of realization for Gawain when he arrives at a place that he thought would feel different and more gratifying than it did, which parallels our own experiences in life as we pursue certain ambitions or get things that we've been anticipating only to be met with disappointment at the reality when compared to what we had imagined. Um, this is the human experience in things, uh, in things as small as entertainment or as big uh, as reaching major life goals. In fact, even achieving wonderful, virtuous things is often sullied by the fact that we in this world are still broken. We can do the right thing. And a lot of times in fiction, they'll say, oh, but doing the right thing is its own reward. You'll feel good when you do the right thing. You know what? Sometimes doing the right thing does not feel good. It doesn't really feel satisfying, at least not in the way that maybe we it was sold to us by other people or movies or whatever. Sometimes doing the right thing it, it's hard and it can even feel empty, um, but that doesn't make it any less right. And, and so I think that the, that's not necessarily a, a statement they were trying to make, but I think it's an observation that I took from it that, uh, that certainly applies to, to our life. You know, um, this, you, you, even the best things in this world are very often tainted and at the very least are temporary. And so true and lasting fulfillment will always elude us uh, until something external to ourselves transforms both us and the world that we live in. And of course, as Christians, we can increasingly learn to find hope in God's plan to do exactly that. Uh, all right. Now, I have no idea what your tastes are in movies, but if I were time traveler, I'd go back in time and say, Peter, um, <sighs> skip this one. Uh, it's, it's not a bad experience for you. It, it's clearly made with a lot of skill, but despite some really striking imagery and good performances, you just have lots of other stuff you'd rather give time to. Um, now, you could, if you wanted to give this movie a shot, keep an eye out for chatter about what you should read beforehand to better appreciate this movie, or see if there's a director's commentary that would explain the intended symbolism that you might even watch, you know, well, maybe not watch before you watch the movie. But anyway, you know, you, you could also just study the book of Leviticus again. Uh, you haven't done that in a while, and even 30 minutes doing that uh, would certainly benefit your life more than watching uh, this movie for over two Two hours. Uh, it's rated R for violence, some sexuality, and graphic nudity. I'd actually swap that and say some nudity and graphic sexuality, uh, because the nudity, mostly just in one scene, was uh, partially obscured by 
creature and makeup types of effects, uh, whereas another scene graphically showed semen on a character's hand without any nudity being involved. Uh, as always, I recommend that you go to imdb.com if you want to get a more blow-by-blow description of the content of a movie and why it was uh, rated the way that it was. All right, well, those are all my thoughts for now on The Green Knight. Uh, what... Oh, yeah, that's right. I totally forgot. Right now, I like to take some time to write a tune for pre-made rhyme. Man, I had no idea. I had no plan for this. The lyrics kind of never change, but the melody gets rearranged. I never know what I'll create to say how much I appreciate. Gabriel Stinson, Brian Franklin, Olin D. Branham, Drew Rub, Winston Crush. Field, Libre, Justin D. Myers, Matthew Ridgeway, Cosmic Fox, and Joel Nelson. Thank you for supporting me and SPP and CGC. And now to all who hear this tune, thank you as well. Please come back soon. Want to hear your name in song? Check out our page on Patreon. Data collection complete. Activating Usenet 1.0. <laughs> Once again this year, I'm raising funds for children in urgent need, this time fundraising for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, which provides free treatment for children facing life or death circumstances and shares its cutting-edge life-saving research with hospitals all over the world. To raise funds, I'm leading members of the Christian Geek Central community in our Game Save 21 event, which you're still welcome to join by following the link in the description below. And once again this year, I'm drawing attention to our team's fundraising by performing a 24-hour marathon of video gaming that I will stream live on youtube.com slash christiangeekcentral beginning 6 a.m. Pacific time on Saturday, November 6th. You can donate or get more info by clicking on my fundraising page in the links below where you'll also find incentives and rewards for doing so. For donating $5 or more, you can choose a topic for me to share my sometimes overly strong opinions on during my live stream. For $10 or more, you get the previous reward and a download code for a free copy of the Spirit Blade Special Edition audio drama. For $20 or more, you get the previous rewards and you can choose a game for me to play during my November 6th live stream. Pick a favorite or torture me with something terrible or rage-inducingly difficult. At $30, you get the previous rewards and you can choose a song for me to sing during my November 6th live stream. Pick an old favorite of yours or just make me humiliate and torture myself with something no one wants to hear. And at $50 or more, you get the previous rewards and a download code for every MP3 product at spiritblade.com. That's an $80 value. On top of that, I've set some fundraising milestones that will unlock strange and unusual happenings as I reach them. At $200, I'll have a free download day for everyone who visits spiritblade.com on November 13th. And as my total goes beyond $200, I'll unlock increasingly more content for that free download day. And depending how far beyond $200 my fundraising goes, during my November 6th livestream, I will show a photo of me you will never be able to unsee, put on a pair of frozen socks and a frozen t-shirt at the same time, shoot water up my nose with a turkey baster, and have my wife Holly play a video game with me for 30 minutes. And if I reach a personal fundraising total of $500 or more, I will do a two-hour jump scare live stream before the end of the year featuring only the games that terrify me most, including Dead Space and PT. Now, I don't want to do that, but I know you sick people want to see that, so you're going to have to pay money to make it happen. 
And if I reach my $500 goal by the end of Thursday, October 21st, I will do a four-hour live stream on Monday night, October 25th, doing my pathetically absolute best to get good at a game in the Souls genre. Now, there are some stipulations and time limits on those rewards and milestones, so quickly follow the link below to my fundraising page for all the details. I hope that you will be a part of helping me and the Christian Geek Central Game Save team do some good for some kids and families who really need it. And then please join me at youtube.com slash christiangeekcentral for my 24-hour video gaming marathon starting at 6 a.m. Pacific time on Saturday, November 6th. Hope to see you then. Oh my gosh, this is all kinds of wrong. I have also launched the CGC GameSave Team fundraising page, which you can reach at gamesave.christiangeekcentral.com. From there, you can find our combined team total as we try to reach our goal of $1,000 raised for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And below that, you'll find our team roster with daily updated numbers for each team member's fundraising and links to each team member's fundraising pages where you can see what fun things they may be doing as part of their fundraising and also donate toward their efforts, which also, of course, counts toward our team total. So again, that's gamesave.christiangeekcentral.com. Over at youtube.com slash christiangeekcentral, I posted my uh, escape room spoiler chat video, which I recorded with uh, both of my sons after watching uh, escape room tournament of champions. Uh, I also posted the Christian Geek Central Halloween special. Uh, which I specifically labeled as 2021. It's actually an update of the special I made and posted back in... Was that 2019? 2018? I don't know. It's been two or three years. Uh, But I added uh, a section from um, a podcast episode a month or two ago where I answered the question, is it a sin to celebrate Halloween? And that just gave me an opportunity to kind of jump into that topic. And it was pretty well in advance of Halloween, and so that the, what I said there might be kind of off your radar. But anyway, um, it's, uh, let's see, what all we have in this, uh, in this special? I'm trying to remember. We have the, the, the question about, you know, whether or not it's a sin to celebrate Halloween and what my thinking is there and why. And then also there's uh, clips of me... <laughs> Getting the, well, actually, it starts with uh, let's play highlights of me getting the crap scared out of me playing uh, PT, and then it, I talk about it, is it sinful to celebrate Halloween and what do we mean by celebrating stuff? And then uh, there's a compilation of jump scares from me from several years, all kind of put together, and then uh, I end the uh, the special with a section talking about should Christians watch scary horror movies or play horror games, and so. Uh, if you've ever kind of uh, wanted to get a sense of maybe what what the, what a biblical perspective might be on those kinds of things, horror entertainment, Halloween, things like that, or if the, you know there's someone that uh, that you know that maybe would find that content interesting, then again I would refer you to our YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash/ChristianGeekCentral, and the CGC Halloween special. This week I also posted uh, Pathfinder ACG Mummies Mask: The Gilded Mask Part Two which is a play session of me playing what I just said. (laughs) And it's also part 17 of the Solo Tabletop Game Fest that I recorded in early 2021. Going to be wrapping up installments of that soon, and then I'll be starting up installments of uh, the the, uh, Solo Tabletop Dungeon Fest that I just did at the end of September. Uh, And I'm thinking, I'm kind of trying to organize myself a little bit. I... 
doing two of these a year, two of these kinds of like, you know, week long uh, streaming solo board game, solo tabletop gaming content things. If I do two of them a year, that'll get me pretty close to having, um, well, I, I don't know, not crazy close, but it, I'll be able to cover most of the year uh, with a weekly tabletop gaming content. And so I'm I'm kind of settling on Tuesdays, I think, as the day that I'll be putting up tabletop content each week until I run out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so anyway, you, you can count probably for a good while now on, uh, I mean, I would say the rest of the year for sure, uh, and maybe beyond that some, uh, on more tabletop gaming content. And well, and then by the time actually I'm done putting up the content for the Solo Tabletop Dungeon Fest, I'm thinking that it'll be earlier in the year each year that I do the uh, the Solo Tabletop Game Fest, which is just general games that I'm playing solo versus specifically dungeon tabletop games that I'm playing solo. But I, I'm thinking... Um, that maybe I, even though I did it in early March last year, I'm thinking I might do it like late January or early February going forward. So anyway, yeah, if uh, you just want to keep an eye out on Tuesdays for tabletop gaming content, uh, it should be coming fairly regularly. Um, let's see. Also, I posted my review of the Green Knight and the Lorehaven content featured on this episode of the podcast. You can see book covers if you watch that video. And the title of that one is Victorian Sci-Fi Horror. <laughs> uh, and then my review also of Halloween Kills. And, oh, I didn't put this in my show notes, but Juan Yuan Sword 7. I, I was originally going to um, review Far Cry 6 for this week and put off Juan Yuan Sword 7 until next week. But just with my partially with my schedule and also me thinking, you know, I think I'd like one extra weekend with this one. Customarily, I put in five hours in a game before reviewing it uh, so that I can be deep enough in where, I, you know, usually when I'm playing, when I play a game for five hours, I, I know almost all the time whether or not I'm really going to like it or not. Uh, I have a pretty good idea of what, what the experience is going to be like for me going forward. But uh, with Far Cry 6, I was like, you know, I think I want to spend a little more time in this. Um, I mean, I'm going to be buying it anyway. So, yeah, uh, so that that should be next week. But, yeah, Juan Yuan Sword 7 uh, is is up as well. So all of that, again, over at YouTube.com slash Christian Geek Central. And while you're there, if you want to like, share, subscribe, and click that bell or anything else to stay connected to the content and share it with other people, uh, that's what helps us grow. So, you know, if you're not, maybe, you know, you, you want to support what I'm doing, but you, you don't have, like, really the money to dedicate to being on the Patreon and stuff. And one way that you can support what I'm doing is to let other people know about it, to talk about this content, to share it with others, because that might help someone else find it who a little further down the road, they themselves might have the resources, the financial flexibility to uh, to support what I'm doing and uh, and help it to grow. So uh, all these things are, are, are all helpful. Uh, let's see here. Nothing really to share regarding the Christian Geekly News highlights uh, from our Twitter feed, at Christian underscore geek. Just a quiet week this week. Not, not a lot of news on that front. But if you do want to uh, get links to those stories whenever they happen, there are certainly weeks where, in fact, most weeks, I have content that I'm sharing here uh, that uh, isn't all of the stuff that I ended up retweeting or, you know, what, or, or highlighting on the Twitter feed there. So uh, there's always equal to or greater than a number of, that was a terrible sentence. <laughs> there's always uh, the same amount or more 
uh, highlights and news from the wider world of Christian geekery on that Twitter feed. Again, at Christian underscore geek on Twitter. Uh, let's see here. Over at patreon.com slash Productions, I posted for Patreon. Well, first, I mean, we had the live uh, pizza with an asterisk Discord party, uh, which was a lot of fun hanging out with some of you guys and uh, having some of you all together in the same uh, hangout that aren't normally together and, and uh, uh, one or two voices that uh, usually can't make it to the monthly hangouts and stuff. So it was, it was neat. It was neat just having uh, a group of us together uh, hanging out and talking. We... Uh, I mean, we didn't really, we, it, it, technically, I guess it was in celebration of reaching 25 monthly patrons, but I mean, I didn't, there was no, like, it wasn't like an anniversary type reflection type, type of thing. We just nerded out. We talked about video games, comics, horror movies for kids. That was an interesting topic. What horror movies would you recommend to watch with kids? <laughs> and then just anything else that came to mind. Um, and so if you couldn't make it, know that you were missed and all patrons can enjoy that archived recording. Uh, which I uh, re-uploaded with improved audio. Uh, so anyway, that's there for for you patrons. Thank you all so much for your support. Um, oh yeah, I posted the uh, journal entries that make up the what is the Pater's Brain Pater's Brain podcast. Both the video and audio version of that went uh, went up this week, and I titled that installment this month uh, "Spiritual Attack on My Work?" Question mark. Uh, and covered uh, several different things, um, talked about how my TMJ and ear popping treatment helped my voice, uh, in a, in a, you know, kind of surprising way. I talked about my very packed October schedule that I was anticipating back in September and that now I'm in the thick of. <laughs> um, and then I also shared some speculation about p- possible spiritual attack on my work that I was trying to sort through. It's like, this is some some weird stuff going on here. What's this about? So uh, I don't know if that's what it was, but I kind of share those details and and, uh, my thoughts on them. What is this? Oh, crap. No, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that. That was an alarm to pick up my son, Titus, who had early release. So I added an extra alarm to pick him up early like I'm supposed to, but I forgot to turn off that other alarm. So freaking tyranny of the timers as usual. Anyway, guys, for as little as $1 a month, you can help make sure my efforts keep going and growing into the future and get yourself a ton of exclusive and archi- exclusive, excuse me, archived and ongoing content that is just for patrons. Uh, and again, thank you so much to all of our Spirit Blade insiders who, in a very tangible, practical way, make it possible for me to continue what I'm doing, to try new things and to do more, um, thank you guys all so much. Again, for more info, patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions. Okay, kiddo, pop quiz time. Best movie franchise? The Terminator. Mm, not even close. The Matrix. Best TV show? Star Trek. Star- what? F- Farscape. You have to know that it's Farscape. Uh, it's like you're not even my son. Unless you're not my son. I don't like your voice. It irritates me. Hey, hey, wait. Let's make another call. No, please. And another, and another, and another. You are very messy. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. 
Halloween Kills. A synopsis on IMDb reads, The Halloween night when Michael Myers returned isn't over yet. Minutes after Laurie Strode, her daughter Karen, and granddaughter Allison left masked monster Michael Myers caged and burning in Laurie's basement, Laurie is rushed to the hospital with life-threatening injuries, believing she finally killed her lifelong tormentor. But when Michael manages to free himself from Laurie's trap, his ritual bloodbath resumes. As Laurie fights her pain and prepares to defend herself against him, she inspires all of Haddonfield to rise up against their unstoppable monster. The Strode women join a group of other survivors of Michael's first rampage who decide to take matters into their own hands, forming a vigilante mob that sets out to hunt Michael down once and for all. All right, so what is this animal? How do I feel about it in general in terms of the story, the pacing, the tone? Uh, I definitely feel like it's an improvement for what I want out of a horror movie in tone compared to the 2018 movie Halloween, uh, which this is a direct follow-up to. It sticks much more to serious tension, and comedic moments are more light moments than actually trying to be funny. And I think that was a, a weakness for me in the in the last film, is that they, they would break up the tension too much um, for, for what I wanted. The story this time zooms out to some to focus on an ensemble cast of townspeople, uh, some of whom survived Michael's first rampage in 1978 and all of whom kind of feel the echoes of that as just part of their town culture. It worked for me as an alternate path for the story to advance uh, since so often sequels of horror movies become rinse and repeat uh, with the kinds of things going on with the same core characters or they just try to make things more interesting by going bloodier and bigger and stuff like that. So taking this route instead of just merely going bloodier and bigger bigger <laughs> kept it I feel like from jumping the shark like so many horror movies do even with just the second installment um, but Laurie Strode and her daughter and granddaughter are still ultimately the central characters which I think is valuable to this experience too there are a few moments that connected with me emotionally like a scene with Laurie talking to an old friend as they recover in the hospital together but other moments sometimes felt emotionally false, including a man who seemed much less concerned about Michael being out and about than he should have been. And uh, both Lori's daughter and granddaughter didn't mourn their husband and father in a way that felt real. It, I mean, it felt real in this if it would have been like six months or a year after they had lost him. But in the in this movie, they lost they just lost him in the last movie, and so th their their grief should still be like in a state of bewildered shock and being totally distraught, um, especially in the early part of the movie before they realize, oh, Michael is not dead. You know, uh, I I think it would have made a, a lot more sense for them to be just totally distraught and and still kind of shocked and and almost in a kind of frenzy over over their grief but uh it didn't it seemed like grief six months to a year out uh but the overall tension did work for me more than in the 28 film and the the kills that kind of come at the the, the climax of those tension building moments have a, a a bluntness uh literally to them oftentimes that felt more painful than those 
kinds of moments in other more gory films of the same kind. Uh, I, it's still not quite what I want in a horror movie. I, I watch comedies to laugh, dramas to cry, and horror movies to be freaking scared and disturbed. Uh, but Halloween Kills doesn't fully commit to dread and horror to the same level as, say, 2003's Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot, which remains a standard for me uh, in this genre. As far as the cast goes, the returning cast still worked for me, especially Jamie Lee Curtis, who, as I mentioned, performed a very touching scene. Um, but I had mixed feelings about the supporting ensemble of cast of townspeople that were kind of new uh, entrants to the series. No cringe level issues in the performances, but in general, I didn't buy into them to the same degree I did with the returning cast members. As far as stunts and visuals, things are kept pretty practical, as I think they really should be in this genre. Uh, things do get plenty bloody, uh, but, but they seem to be in service to the serious tone, rather than going over-the-top gory. Michael continues to be a largely shadowed figure whose face is never revealed. And I think that's important because it sells his character concept as an embodiment of evil. What they were establishing more and more in the last movie and then continue establishing in this movie is like, this is not just a normal person. There's something off, something supernatural about him. They never go into the details like his mom did some satanic ritual or whatever. And I'm glad that they don't explain, uh, you know, why, what, what is supernatural about him. It's just kind of like this feeling people get because of how he doesn't go down and how he is just singularly uh, focused on on killing and stuff. There, there's, a, there's some fear of the unknown that is really part of the concept of Michael Myers. And that is supported by the way they visually present him in this movie. So I was pretty satisfied just with the overall visual presentation here, with maybe only a couple prosthetic uh, heads or, or things that were replacing, you know, human parts for a split second that maybe didn't work for me, but they, they were very brief. Uh, all right, as far as themes, is there anything more of moral, philosophical, or spiritual significance going on in the themes of this thing that might trigger some worthwhile thought uh, or, con or uh, conversation? Um, and I think absolutely there's a jumping off point in this movie. The major theme is about how evil can cause us to fear, and that fear can lead us to do evil uh, and really become this cyclical thing, even though we may see our actions as just or good in the moment or may feel that our actions and our viewpoint is just and good. Uh, mob justice is a major part of this movie. There's, uh, you know, in the idea of fear leading us, leading people to rebel against the law or to do harm and to direct their anger in the wrong places. Uh, I wondered as I watched this if it was maybe inspired by a reaction to the mob violence we saw a lot of in 2020 and early 2021. Um, but this film was originally set to release in the fall of 2020, so it seems you know very doubtful that it, you know that at least it was related to the riots surrounding uh, like Black Lives Matter, you know, and that kind of thing. And and also it would have been before, unless they did some reshoots that I didn't know about, uh, it would have been before the um, the, uh, the the political riots um, in the in the capital. But uh, anyway. In, uh, uh, let's see here. Yeah, it, so, but in light of, even though it was delayed and probably wasn't thinking about those things much, if at all, uh, in light of the violent mobs that we've seen come about for multiple reasons in the last two years, and in the wake of our failure to treat each other with respect amidst our different views on COVID and vaccines, 
you know, the word of caution delivered by this movie seems extremely relevant right now. Uh, some quotes that, that in particular really brought a focus to this theme was, um, when we are afraid, the boogeyman wins. They, they're building up this idea that, that Michael in some way uh, counts on our fear, is even charged up by our fear. And so when we are afraid and react in fear, that's when we're playing into his plans, you know? And I think that there's, you know, that, that there's truth there in terms of like Satan and his allies in, you know, his, in the spiritual world that, uh, uh, that of course, uh, they want us to be afraid and to react out of fear, you know? Um, Evil dies tonight is something that the mob started chanting. It was their battle cry. But that goes south, and that gets directed in the wrong place. Um, And one character says in a different context, but still lining up, I think, with that same theme, just because your intentions are good doesn't mean things always work out. And I think that's so important as we so often get caught up in following what feels in the moment like that which is just and good and righteous. Um, That even as believers, we can end up behaving in ways, talking in ways, conversing in ways, communicating in ways that we think are bold and righteous and good, but actually there's something emotionally that we are at, that we're following in those moments that is uh, leading us in the wrong direction, or at least leading us to handle the way we communicate, the way we treat others uh, in, in the wrong way. Um, there's also a a little bit of inconsistency, you know, there's a, there's a tendency a couple times to blame Mike Myers for how people are being reacting. They say, look at what he's doing to us. And I kind of wanted to pause and say those moments. Well, yes, he's doing evil and he's responsible for that evil. He's not responsible for you reacting in fear in a bad way and, and, and doing the wrong thing because of that fear. That's because of brokenness in you and me, you know, that that's, that's what's going on there. So we shouldn't, when we find ourselves because of intense situations, reacting in ways that are sinful, we shouldn't be blaming our sinful reactions on, uh, the cause of our distress, you know? Um, and then, uh, you know, kind of, again, I, you know, I say inconsistently because there was another character that, uh, in the wake of kind of seeing this mob violence going in the wrong direction, saying none of us are innocent, you know? Um, and so I think it's really important that we, that we look inward and consider what we are contributing to the mess that we are really troubled by. Um, and then talking about Michael near the end of the movie, uh, Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, says you can't close your eyes and pretend he isn't there because he is. And I think that's also probably, uh, in, maybe I think intentionally, but even if not, then, then accidentally, commentary on the nature of fear uh, commentary on the nature of the the sin and evil inside each of us that we need to be on guard against. You can't close your eyes and pretend it's not there because it is. And so we need to face that uh, that reality, each one of us. Uh, anyway, uh, I have no idea what your tastes are in movies, but if I were a time traveler, I'd go back in time and say, Peter, um, okay, wait, you don't need to get Peacock uh, and subscribe for a month or go to the theater to see this right when it releases. 
wait and watch like on a streaming service that it's on that you're already getting for something else. It's not that like great must see of an experience or rent it when it's like two bucks at Redbox. Then, you know, definitely it'll be a, a, a good deal for a nights of uh, a night of horror entertainment. It's not going to become one of your favorite horror movies, but um, it's going to work much better for you than the first one and leave you unexpectedly invested now in this franchise, which seems certain to continue based on how this one ended. It's rated R for strong, bloody violence throughout, grisly images, language, and some drug use. And those are all my thoughts for now on Halloween Kills. It's time for another review roundup from our friends at lorehaven.com, highlighting novels from the world of Christian geek fiction publishing. This time, we've got Victorian sci-fi horror, yes, that's just one book, fantasy, dystopian science fiction, and supervillains. Let's get into it. First up is Secrets in the Mist Skyworld, book one by Morgan L. Bussey. Divers lead hazardous lives combing the abandoned cities of the mist, where monsters shamble and poison infects the air. It is still safer than dodging purges and scavengers, so Cass is happy for a time. In Secrets in the Mist, Morgan L. Bussey mixes elements of sci-fi, horror, and Victorian literature. Treasure hunts and zombies sail smoothly in the skies of this post-apocalyptic world, raising natural questions about why such horrors and miseries exist. Still, bleakness does not dominate the story. The grim painting of a wrecked world is relieved by brighter colors, the good things and good people that still remain. The story's plot also intrigues, dishing up surprises and mysteries. Secrets in the Mist is an enjoyable, well-crafted tale, light enough for most audiences. Lorehaven says it's best for teens and any fans of steampunk or dystopian novels. And points to discern include some violence, zombies appear and are occasionally fought with fire, though with little graphic detail, someone is infected with poisonous spores, several men attack a young woman, the story's only portrayed church is associated with an oppressive upper class. So again, that's Secrets in the Mist Skyworld Book 1 by Morgan L. Bussey. Then we've got Apprentice Collective Underground Book 1 by Kristen Young. Love all, be all. In Kristen Young's Apprentice, the Supreme Collective epitomizes love and only wants everyone else to love. As an apprentice, Flick can become a rare elite lover thanks to her perfect memory. But her desperation for perfection and her increasing nightmares may lead to a shocking truth that some people will do anything to hide. Common dystopian themes such as all-powerful governments and compliant citizens quickly grow beyond cliches in this thrilling search for truth and the meaning of reality. As book one of the Collective Underground series, Apprentice provokes introspection about whether the cost of peace is worth the price of freedom, leaving readers' minds turning long after they finish. Lorehaven says it's best for young adults and fans of intriguing dystopian adventure, and points to discern include some violence and sexual references. Next up, Wraithwood, the Wraithwood Trilogy, book one by Alyssa Rote. When timid Brinny visits her mysterious uncle in his creepy old mansion called Wraithwood, the housekeeper, driver, and other secretive residents don't seem to know why she's there. They definitely don't want her visiting certain parts of the house. Alyssa Rote's Wraithwood starts like a Victorian gothic tale, but turns more magical as Brinny discovers supernatural forces in upstate New York. 
But why does everyone keep blaming her for these chaotic effects? Before long, she finds herself fighting against a foe from Arthurian legend through the manor and a hedge maze, growing more confident in her new powers. Although confusing at times, this tale of wizards battling between our world and a parallel one conjures an enjoyable reading experience. Lorehaven says it's best for fans of Harry Potter and similar tales of parallel magic worlds. And points to discern include good and bad characters all use wizard magic, and frequent violence such as a person stabbed to death as the hero watches. Again, that's Wraithwood, the Wraithwood trilogy book one by Alyssa Rote. And finally, Ignite, Ignite Duology Book 1 by Jenna Therese. Imagine a world of no superheroes, only supervillains. In Jenna Therese's Ignite, everyone is a potential victim of superpowered people. That's why Scarlet believes that locking supers away in camps is the best policy to protect everyone else. Then one day, outside an ice cream shop, a fiery super attacks Scarlet, yet she doesn't burn. Aflame with questions and terrified of the answers, Scarlet is sure she will hurt everyone she loves. But what if she's wrong? What if her powers aren't a curse, but a gift? If Scarlet learns to accept this idea, what will this mean for her world? With basic prose and quick pace, Ignite balances superhero action with deep questions about prejudice and responsibility in a complex, challenging world. Lorehaven says it's best for fans of superheroes and young adult action, and points to discern include superpowered violence, medical experiments, and human prejudice. And again, that's Ignite, Ignite Duology Book 1 by Jenna Therese. And that's it for this time, but remember you can find tons more great content over at lorehaven.com. Nice, another achievement unlocked. That I got more achievements than anybody I know. Yes, sitting in front of a video game for five hours a day is quite an achievement. See, this is why I don't like talking to you. Then why don't you spend more time with real people? Because real people don't respond to console commands. Wow, Pater. You unlocked yet another achievement. You must have more achievements than anyone you know. Behold, you are great, and greatly to be praised. Yeah, better. Juan Yuan Sword 7 uh, is a video game that was barely on my radar. It's the seventh game in a series that, based on the title alone, doesn't seem interested in marketing itself to the average English-speaking player. Even finding out that it was an action RPG, one of my favorite genres, wasn't enough to pull me in. But the developer was kind enough to provide a review copy for me, which I want to thank them for. And so my only risk was an investment of time. I've spent about six hours now with Juan Yuan Sword 7. If you're listening to the podcast, that is spelled XU. A-N-Y-U-A-N, Sword 7. Uh, so six hours with this game. I still don't feel like I have a great handle on what this game might be like at the 10-hour mark. Tutorials are brief pop-up windows that barely introduced me to the systems like battle stances, hotkey special abilities, and crafting. And so rather than look up guides online to have these systems better explained to me, I largely ignored them and compensated by keeping the difficulty on easy for the first three hours, which I normally default to anyway since I play games 
games for fantasy and not for challenge. As I suspected, over time I started catching on to the systems available to me, uh, so after three hours I put the difficulty up to normal. It's not that the systems are at all complex, they're just not uh, very thoroughly explained at the, at the beginning, and so they can seem a little bit more uh, obtuse or strange than they actually are. Zhuan Yuan Sword 7 is an action RPG, but despite technically having a stamina system, it's nothing like a Souls game, so don't let that, that stamina bar give you that impression if you watch preview footage. Uh, on the easy difficulty, once I had recruited two companions, I found they could actually do the fighting for me in the small skirmishes, the random fights you'd run into, and I wouldn't take enough damage to lose even one-third of my health. So if you want a super casual experience, these are developers who actually know what the word easy means, which is more rare and valuable than I think it should be in the difficulty options of video games today. Even on normal difficulty, which I'll assume for my comments going forward, you can hammer that basic attack button and not get tired out from stamina loss. And your basic attack will mostly serve you well unless facing a larger number of enemies or bosses. In those cases, I gladly dipped into uh, the three special attacks with cooldowns that I have access to at this point. One of them allows me to pull groups of enemies together to help manage larger sets of enemies. Another triggers a firebomb attack dr delivered by my sis uh, kid sister, which goes perfect after bringing them together with that first uh, special move. And then a third triggers a special attack from my most recently acquired companion. So far, I haven't had to worry about my companion's safety at all, which I really, really appreciate. They've actually only been beneficial to have with me. You also gain access to multiple battle stances and can have two stances equipped and at the ready. Uh, so far, the, 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 even though they call them battle stances, it seems to mainly only change what your heavy attack is and not in a drastic way. So I found a stance that I liked and basically stuck with it for most of my time playing. You can't jump in the game, but you can dodge, and you'll need to learn to do so at the right times to avoid especially powerful boss and mini-boss attacks. Much of the rest of the time, you probably won't need to dodge. Of course, if those fights ever get too frustrating for any reason, you can just switch to easy. Uh, it'll require you to load up your last save, but uh, usually there's some auto-saves or save points, you know, pr pretty uh, generously peppered throughout the places that you're exploring that it's not too big of a setback at all. Uh, and then once you do that, you'll probably get through most anything, um, at least during the first six hours, without much effort. The combat is a major part of the game, and for me, the jury's still out on how I ultimately feel about it. For the time being, it's, it's definitely fine, and maybe more than that. On easy, it did become dull eventually, but on normal, I'm needing to use varied attack abilities now and then, and heal myself now and then, and so it's at least engaging, and in rarer moments, really fun. But I'm not confident it's going to still feel that way after a few more hours, and if that ends up being the case, I, I may lose interest and not finish the game. We'll see. Now and then in combat, there are cinematically stylized quick-time events, which you might also see in-game footage. Um, I'm not generally a fan of these, but they aren't super frequent. Uh, they don't distract from watching the cool animation. Sometimes quick-time events will have you so focused on the, the, the button presses you need to do that you, you can't watch the cool animation they put together for you. And I didn't feel like they got in the way of the cool animations they created. Uh, and they also give, have given me plenty of time to trigger them. And so I've not found them to be the annoyance that they can be for me in other games. Uh, you can purchase and craft consumables with various effects like defense or attack buffs and, of course, healing. But even on normal difficulty, I haven't tapped into more than a few healing potions here and there. 
You can also use acquired components to upgrade your equipment, which hasn't felt at all urgent to me yet, but it does provide a little incentive to keep an eye out for treasure. While the game areas are pretty linear, they are linear in a wide sense, with frequent opportunities to go off the beaten path if you keep an eye out for them. And almost every time I do, I find a chest or at least some flashing pots that contain crafting components or other useful items when I break them. So despite being far from an open world, I do find that my exploration itch is being scratched in a really satisfying way. As I made my way through the world, I discovered what is for me the game's biggest selling point, its setting. The game is set in ancient China, exploring a mix of its history and legends. The art style is serious and realistic, and the monsters, despite clearly having a Chinese lore aesthetic, uh, also feel like they have a lot of dark sword and sorcery blended in. It, it reminds me a bit of a cross between a Chinese fa fantasy martial arts movie and the Lord of the Rings films. I'm pretty happy with the monster variety, and the designs have dark, supernatural, and menacing sensibilities that I'm really digging. And since I've had a hard time enjoying many movies or games with similar Chinese mythological settings, it's a bit of a novelty and a treat to find that I enjoy how that setting is presented here. The music also has a distinctive Chinese aesthetic to it, including some great atmospheric tracks like drone-style chanting and uh, a blend of modern orchestra and ancient Eastern instrumentation. At least some of it is sampled rather than using live instruments, but the score contributes to the setting in ways that I really do appreciate. That said, although the game presents well at a glance, you can quickly and frequently see lots of stretched out and blurry textures in the mix. East Asia Soft is not known for games that go for a realistic, color-muted, and serious aesthetic, so by their normal standards, this game seems like a very ambitious double-A sort of project. That's really the feel that, it, that, in terms of polish and quality and budget and stuff, that it has for me. So despite the things I'm liking and its big-budget impression at a glance, uh, it's very valuable, I think, to understand the actual production values and set expectations appropriately before going into this one. The classic AA lack of polish shows up in other areas too. As I mentioned, the tutorials weren't very helpful to me, and the translation includes recurring grammatical errors or just a general clunkiness. There's also no English voice acting option. I compensated for this some um, by turning off voice acting, which I almost always do anyway, and uh, putting myself in the headspace of Pater in high school and college when playing questionably translated JRPGs without voice acting was the norm. Uh, I can usually make it sound okay in my head, and that's what I found to be the case here for the most part. Another little rough edge is the lack of consistency regarding where you can walk. There are the invisible walls you'd expect now and then in a non-open world game, but there are also some slopes you can walk up with others that you can't, and while some ledges provide an invisible guardrail, others just let you fall to instant death. But most of the time it is pretty clear where you can and can't go, so this wasn't a source of frustration, just a little bump in my experience now and then. One element I really appreciate that most devs don't bother with is skippable puzzles. There are recurring puzzles that will need to be solved to advance, but each one so far has given me the option to skip it. I 
hate puzzles. So this is hugely appreciated. Uh, I don't really play games for their stories, and this one is harder to follow than most because of all the Chinese proper nouns I'm having trouble keeping straight. But the story requires no previous knowledge of the series and is uh, just personal and emotional enough that I'm curious to see where it goes. And while the character's body and facial animations have a budget look to them, the camera work in the frequent but moderately brief cutscenes uh, is engaging. I am always on the lookout for moral, philosophical, and spiritual themes in the stories of movies and games, and Zhuan Yuan Sword 7 definitely brought some real-world spiritual issues to mind. The story is steeped in ancient Chinese folklore and mythology and makes visible what the ancient Chinese likely only saw in their mind's eye. But even today, 20 to 70% of people in China believe in some form of Chinese folklore, venerating or praying to ancestors, spirits, or forces of nature. Uh, for many, it may be more traditional and culture than actual belief, but I was reminded while playing this game of, of how far from Jesus so many are in China. Of course, the same could be said in much of America, it just takes a different form here, but even so, I found myself feeling pulled to pray for some specific people in China after spending some hours in this game. According to the average on how long to beat, the main story takes 11 and a half hours to finish, three more when adding extras, and over 23 hours total for completionist runs. Uh, that feels short enough that since I have the game already, I can imagine I'll be interested enough to see it through at some point, but at $50, I wouldn't pay near full price for what this game offers me in terms of quality and playtime. Knowing what I know now, I could see feeling good about getting this game on a deep discount somewhere down the line. $15 to $25 would feel about right to me, and $10 or less would feel like a really good bargain for what you get here. It offers a decent gameplay, and much more valuable than that, a unique setting that I may have an itch for on rare occasions, like after watching the Yin Yang Master Dream of Eternity. And honestly, I found that even just being in the mood for a casual third-person action RPG, RPG with a serious, uh, somewhat Lord of the Rings fantasy vibe, you know, just wanting that, this game called out to me. Uh, I would love to see this series continue reaching westward with stronger localization. It's satisfying to play and really fun in spurts, but right now it's competing with too many other games in my collection for it to be the main focus in my free time. Uh, so we'll see how things go. I hope something and all that is helpful to you, uh, but that's all I have to say for now about Zhuan Yuan Sword 7. The truth will set you free. Truth is that which corresponds to fact or reality. To assert that truth is not absolute is a self-defeating proposition. Lots of things are possible, but our beliefs should reflect the best explanation of the available evidence. I'm no expert, but the information is out there. You'd be amazed what you can learn if you spend some time in search of truth. The truth will set you free. Right now, I'm going to attempt to examine the Bible and dissect some of the churchy language we can really easily take for granted, digging into history and languages, as I'm able anyway, to try and get at the truth so that we can hopefully see and then apply at least some of what God has for you and me in these words today. Now, uh, I'm not formally trained in scripture. I'm just a guy using resources and a questioning mind to try and get at the truth, and that's something that we can all do, so I hope that you will do that with me. Uh, we've been studying through the book of Philippians, and uh, now we've arrived at Philippians. 4, 9, which is coming at the end of a passage that's been uh, really valuable to me personally. Philippians 4, 9 says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
Now, beginning in verse 4 of Philippians chapter 4, Paul gives instruction for life as it pertains to our attitudes and our thought lives. Uh, the context for this, ins this instruction included both conflict happening between believers and anxiety as believers are being uh, persecuted from outside of the church. God's intention for our thought lives is that we find joy in who he is, regardless of our circumstances, find joy in who he is and what he has done and has promised to do, and that we would be th in thankful relationship with God, expressing our concerns to him, and that we would direct our thoughts to develop the perspective God wants us to have. Now in verse 9, Paul and the Holy Spirit give us a briefly stated but practical and powerful bit of instruction for those who want to experience the peace that God offers. Again, verse 9 says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The words learned and received in the Greek are almost synonyms with received, mostly just adding the connotation of a teacher being the source of this learned knowledge. And heard and seen refers to the fact that the original readers had firsthand interactions with Paul that they could draw from, that they could learn from. Uh, before scripture was a collected resource, the first Christians relied heavily on learning directly from the apostles. Now, as believers today, we don't have firsthand daily life experiences with the apostles to draw from. So what do we do? How do we apply this verse when Paul says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things? Well, uh, we have scripture collecting the vital teaching of the apostles, and we should have in-person relationships with other believers who are more mature in Christ than we are. Uh, the idea here is that believers should be learning how to live in relationship with God, uh, directing, shaping their way of thinking and seeing the world um, through both biblical teaching and godly examples found in these relational experiences with other Christians. Then the harder part, uh, where the rubber meets the road and theory turns into experienced reality. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I don't think the, the title God of peace is just kind of random flowery language. Like this is another way we can refer to God, you know. Given the partial context of anxiety here and the focus on our, our thought lives, what Paul seems to be saying here is that if we practice these things, we will experience God specifically as the one who brings us peace. So what are the these things? When Paul says practice these things um, in order to experience God's peace. Well, we aren't given the specifics, uh, but it seems likely that they were traits Paul demonstrated uh, that he put into practice um, and uh, that, are, that are related to what he's saying in verses 4 through 8 about shaping our thought lives, having this certain perspective, and so on. Um, so as believers today who want to experience the peace of God, we should be looking for teachers who teach passages like Philippians 4, 4 through 8 well, and then also look for relationships with more mature believers who live out this teaching in ways that we can see firsthand because we're living life alongside them, and that we can also then learn to imitate and adapt to our own lives, our own life situations. Uh, okay, so what's in all this, maybe specifically for geeks? Many geeks, I think, are going to find themselves between a rock and a hard place here. Maybe because they've been burned by relationships in church, or maybe they don't form those relationships 
because they struggle in social situations. And yet many of those same geeks live with an undercurrent of anxious thinking and conflict with believers, problems that they would like to be free of, I think. Uh, and there's not an easy solution here. We are going to be hurt by some church relationships, and yet other church relationships will play a role in helping us to experience life and uh, peace from God. Uh, if we avoid church relationships, we will avoid some hurt, but we're also going to remain emotional slaves to our circumstances and never experience the increasingly lasting and consistent peace God wants for us. And as I think I've mentioned before, you know, I think part of what God does in those relationships that can tend to rub us the wrong way or hurt us is those are like training experiences where at least we're in conflict with people who at the end of the day should be seeing God's word as their authority. That is the ideal place. That is the ideal place to be hurt and to be wronged. Because then, as we work through those things, the other party involved um, should be seeing Scripture as God's word and authority for their lives, and we can work through it with that as common ground. Um, so we're, we're not going to, unless we avoid people altogether, and that's a horrible thing to end up doing. Uh, our lives will atrophy and self-destruct in so many ways if we just avoid all people as much as possible. Uh, but if at, at, at the very least, if we are prioritizing, allowing ourselves to be in relationship with other Christians, at least as a starting point or prioritizing that, that is the ideal place to have conflict that is inevitable in all human relationships. Um, and so that's where, you know, in addition to learning from people's good examples, dealing with hurt and conflict in, in the context of relationships with other believers in a local church where there's, uh, um, there are leaders that are in place that can help us get through that conflict. You know, I mean, it's really, really the, none of these thoughts really were part of my notes. It's just kind of an offhanded thing, but uh, hopefully it's something the spirit wanted to put in here because I think it's, it's really worth noting um, that, uh, that it's, that even the, the negative aspects, the hurt we can experience in church can be a part of God teaching us how to have peace in our lives, despite what our circumstances might be. Um, so anyway, yeah, to experience God's peace, we've got to walk out on a limb with people. And we also have to walk out on a limb with God, um, trusting him enough to put into practice what he teaches us through his word and through the biblical examples of, uh, of others. Um, this isn't a one-time thing either, where we should expect the fullness of God's peace when we give him an inch of obedience in this area. It seems to be, as so many things in Scripture, so many of God's promises of, of like a more vibrant life and a more peaceful life and a more fulfilling life right now seem to be proportional to our, our willingness to engage in obedience with how God wants us to handle those situations. And so I think similarly here, this seems to be a proportional thing with peace gained increasingly from an ongoing process of learning and practicing and living alongside believers uh, more mature than us. Now, I am a, a worrier and a hermit by nature, so this is a real struggle for me, and I, I really want to see a lot of growth in my life in experiencing the peace of God. Uh, so this is a challenge I need to be willing to take on. Um, and I hope that you'll, you'll do that with me, because I really believe that there is increasing and great peace waiting for us that we can begin experiencing now. 
Incoming transmission. This week over at YouTube.com slash Christian Geek Central, under my review of the video game Elix, which has been a couple of years, I mean, three years since I can't, two years, I don't know. Anyway, um, uh, I, I do get notifications for even on my old videos. So if you ever want to dive into the archives and uh, re- react to something that you see and watch there, I'll still get it. Still happy to interact with you about it. Uh, anyway, uh, YouTube user Wanderer under my Elix review said, It is a good thing that I gave this game a chance even after seeing your vid three years ago. Oh, okay. I guess it was three years ago. I also came from Fallout and Skyrim, games that spoon feed and mostly are feel good. This game kicked my butt, but I deeply enjoyed it and finished it with the greatest satisfaction. Now that Elix 2 is around the corner, I am going to replay this and do a non-combat and pure personality build while waiting for the second installment. Hopefully you gave this game a chance also. More power to your channel. Uh, thanks for that, Wanderer. I did actually stick with it for a good while after making use of a glitch that let me gain a ton of currency, which I think, if I remember correctly, could even be um, used to buy potions that would boost my experience or like give me just out and out give me experience. And so just having that that glitch to give me a ton of currency helped me boost my levels and stuff and made me, you know, pretty much as as strong as I want to be so that I'm much less likely to be killed. I, I wouldn't say it made me like so overpowered that nothing could touch me. Uh, but, uh, but definitely, you know, closer to the challenge level that, that, that I wanted. Uh, and, you know, maybe even on like the casual side of things, which is nice. But I still eventually lost interest, I think, due to some quality of life issues. Um, one that comes to mind, I think it has something to do with the mini-map. And navigation in that game and like going, figuring out, using the the markers that they put in the game to to tell you where to go next. I can't remember. I can't remember. So, uh, yeah, I still eventually lost interest. Um, Oh, also the way the character moves and controls. I mean, moves, the animations are very stiff, very stiff. And so it's not a cool action figure to control, you know. It looks cool, but it doesn't move cool, you know. Um, I'm definitely not saying never at this point, though. We've seen a trailer for Elix 2 that I think I did hear was in-engine. I'm not sure. It it looked like a CG trailer. And if it was in-engine then it's gotten a huge overhaul because it just, that character is moving differently. Just the game looked very differently. It did not represent what my experience of Elix 1 is. That said, if that trailer is representative of gameplay for Elix 2, then I'm definitely going to give it a try. I'm just doubtful how much that trailer represents gameplay for Elix 2. Um, so I'm going to be keeping an eye out on the preview materials for that. For those of you who don't know, Elix, I mean, you can check out my review to see this, but it's this post-apocalyptic world that has sci-fi tech and magic in it. And so it, reminiscent in some ways of like Thundar the Barbarian, if you were, if you're old enough to have seen that cartoon where it, it is a post-apocalyptic world, but it also has this really dark sword and sorcery fantasy vibe. And Elix has kind of that vibe too. I mean, it's not not as heavy into sword and sorcery as Thundar, or is yeah, as Thundar, but uh, but still leaning far more in that direction than any other post-apocalyptic game I've ever seen. And so I just love that mashup of genres. It was the world that really made me want to check out that game, and still makes me want to like it and like the sequel to it. Uh, and what what I've read of the preview materials for Elix Two is that it is your same character that you're playing. 
Um, and it does recognize kind of like the, the events of the first game. You know, it's not like an Elder Scrolls game where you're starting with a brand new character and you don't really have to have previous knowledge of other games this one i think i mean maybe maybe for the plot of this game you don't need knowledge of of the previous games but i'm still gonna feel like i i might be missing out on something because it's the same character uh in the sequel so uh if elix 2 preview materials going forward show me that they're making the changes i want um then i will likely give elix another really good try at least one more time just in in anticipation of trying out elix 2 so anyway wanderer thanks for watching and and sharing your thoughts on that um let's see here underneath the christian geek central halloween special spider dan 1985 said this is a great video and has some very interesting counter arguments to the prevailing christian sentiment against horror content and halloween I was never a big fan of blood and gore growing up anyway, and really the only scary stuff I enjoy are Alien and Predator. It's funny, though, because it's not that I don't agree with all the logic. I just still find it hard to give myself permission to enjoy a lot of it. Perhaps it's my Catholic upbringing. Ha ha. Um, Thanks for sharing that, Dan. Um, I think those feelings are still at least worth paying attention to and exploring. As much as I think we do have freedom in this area, there may also be legitimate reasons that God would lead specific individuals to abstain from these things. Um, so uh, that's not to say that, you know, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. It just takes discernment. It just takes discernment. If you go through all of uh, what I think are the good biblical arguments uh, to, that that's indicate we have freedom in these areas, but there's still a feeling that remains um, that doesn't want to give you permission to engage in those things, um, I consider feelings when it comes to this kind of stuff as attention getters. I don't think they should be deciders, but uh, I think they they can be attention getters that even the, the Holy Spirit may use to just have us go, okay, hold on a second, um, and just review, review, you know? That could be the Holy Spirit saying, okay, this there's still something inside of you that's not ironed out about this, and so make yourself more firm in the truth. Uh, so that so that these feelings are not going to be getting in the way. On the other hand, maybe there is something specific to your situation that the Holy Spirit wants to get your attention to. Again, it's not the feelings that should stop you, but I think they they can be a a, a reminder to stop and give it more thought. And uh, uh, I, I do think there are times in life where you know if we are fully convinced in the truth of something, then we need to set feelings aside that would that would lean us in the other direction. Um, I'm not saying that's what's going on here, but, uh, anyway, that's just a little bit of my expanded thoughts on, on, on that issue. Uh, over at the forums at christiangeekcentral.com, I'm not actually going to read, uh, the, the, this thread, but I wanted to point your attention to it, uh, to the thread, Superman's son and DC Comics as a whole is gay and woke. And that was started by, uh, user Reed Benson, and, um, it was talking about, uh, the news that, Superman's son, John, J-O-N, named after his, his, uh, you know, his father, Jonathan, Jonathan Kent, um, is in an upcoming story, or maybe it's been published already, I'm not clear on that, is coming out as a bisexual character and is starting a homosexual relationship. 
uh, with another uh, teenage boy. And it was news to me that he'd actually even been aged up. I am way behind, um, even as I've been... Well, I actually did. I, I did not renew my DC Universe Infinite subscription when it was due for renewal about two or three weeks ago. So, But I think it's just a matter of time soon here before I, I get back into another, you know, binge of reading. I, I've been making a... You know, I've had a pretty good pace going through DC Comics uh, to eventually get caught up to to kind of like the, the current era. Um, but I'm still like years back, years back, you know, five years or so five or six years maybe um at least i want to say anyway uh so it was it was new and i haven't even reached the part quite yet where john kent is introduced but i've read that story uh and he's like a you know he's an elementary age kid and so i i guess there was a storyline that aged him up some weird time travel thing and uh, i'm bummed about that and i talked about this some on the thread uh, that that actually was in some ways more striking to me uh, as news because I'm like, dang it, we we have so many characters that DC is content to keep frozen in time in their 20s or 30s, you know. Uh, but this is a or, or even their late teens or mid teens. But my gosh, uh, we can freeze a character, an elementary age character, like oh my gosh, there's so much story potential there. So much that they haven't even come close to mining. Um, and so I'm like, dang it, why, 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 you know, even setting aside, you know, the, the gay issue, you know. So, um, yeah, and, but, but we did get into LGBTQ plus and that kind of movement in uh, comics and culture right now. And, and uh, my part of the conversation was largely kind of trying to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we respond to this um, and uh, sorting through that? And so uh, anyway, yeah, that's, if you're into comic books at all, even if you're not a DC fan, I think it's a, a conversation that yielded some interesting and hopefully worthwhile things between me and Reed. So uh, again, that, that uh, title at our forums at ChristianGeekCentral.com, that thread is called Superman's Son and DC Comics as a whole is gay and woke. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, I got a message from Justin D. Myers, a patron over at patreon.com slash Productions. He used the direct messaging uh, system in that to uh, to uh, get in touch with me and said that I could share this. Um, but this, he actually sent this to me last week, and I, I'm sorry, Justin, I forgot to put this in the notes for when I recorded the podcast last week. Um, but I did definitely want to, to share this. Uh, anyway, Justin writes... Hey, Peter, finally got around to figuring out how to change my name on Patreon. You can refer to me as JD still if you prefer. Uh, I DC, I don't know the cool kids things. I DC just wanted to go by my given name now. I just, I think, I think at one time when I was reading this, I figured out, oh, this must mean that. And now I'm totally blanking on what I thought it meant. Uh, anyway, just wanted to go by my given name now. My father uh, has made a miraculous recovery. They are letting him go home from rehab Friday, and the doctors have rarely seen such a rapid recovery from a stroke. He's still having speech issues, though. My wife is doing well, too. Thanks for the prayers. I've contacted you to ask about work-slash-life-slash-ministry balance. Our church is moving out of its building, and we feel God is leading us in that direction. 
We also seem to be going to a small group and online service format where we meet like small groups for worship and service, and then group leaders will go over prepared questions designed to get response and get people to apply the lesson. I'm now an elder and the youth pastor, so there's two responsibilities, and me and the wife agree we're being called to lead one of these home church groups. There's also a women's group my wife attends, uh, a men's group, which is just starting, a young married with kids group we are joining as a family, and a dinner club small group who uh, meets for dinner and fellowship once a month, not to mention sports practices that two of our kids are starting. That that whew is me, not him. Uh, How do we know when we've taken on too much and how do we start to prune from all these good things? As always, feel free to share this with our brothers and sisters. Thanks for your input. You've been a great influence in my life. Wow, Justin. Uh, First off... um, Really glad to hear about your dad and wife recovering. Praise Yahweh for that. Um, and my gosh, what a good question. And one I feel among the least equipped to answer. Work-life ministry balance is something I've been trying to figure out for a long time. I think I'm a bit of a baby and pamper myself too much. I have always had problems trusting God enough to willingly embrace stress, discomfort, and especially pain. Sometimes I'll think, Well, God wants me to be responsible and rest when needed so I don't burn out. But then I'll think, "Mm, okay, well, is that just me trying to make my laziness or fear sound spiritual? I could second guess my thinking on choices like this all day, but I think I do err on the side of not trusting God enough to take on more in my life. So please keep that in mind as I share my thoughts. That said, um, there are some things I think about when faced with the choice to add responsibilities to my life, although not sadly in the following order. I wish it was in the following order, but sadly it's not. Uh, But the number one, will it impact the one-on-one time I devote to my relationship with God and growth in his word? Um, Two, will it result in less time given to my wife or boys compared to what is normal now? Three, will it take away from my ability to fulfill any existing commitments? And four, will it take away rest slash recuperation time to a degree that will leave me irritable with others? And I'm ashamed to say I usually start by considering this last question and give it more weight than I should. Uh, And that last question is tricky because it may be that I only fear that it will be true that this new commitment would uh, take away rest and recuperation enough to make me irritable toward others. Um, I think because of fear, I have rejected some opportunities God may have been presenting when instead I should have been willing to enter into a season of potential stress, difficulty, and growth as I truly explore what God will and will not make me capable of doing. I also believe that if we enter into a commitment that disrupts our lives, resulting in failure, sinful attitude, oh, excuse me, I, I am, I am reading some of my, uh, my, uh, notes here that I sent back to him. I also believe that if we enter into a commitment that disrupts our lives, resulting in failure, sinful attitudes, and wrongful behaviors on our part, God is not to blame in those cases for like not coming through or whatever we might think. It could be that we made the wrong decision or that God actually wants to bring us through a hard season of life while doing what he's calling us to in order to teach and shape us. Um, I think our responsibility is just to be readily humble, to be readily repentant as we fail in our character, you know. Uh, I think there's probably times that God has called me to things that would stretch me enough that in my sin I would become irritable with my family. Um, and th- there have been times where I have entered into things that, that stressed me out and made me irritable with my family. That, that failure is still mine. And I think that 
Um, it, it's not that I should have said no to that thing, but that uh, I shouldn't have gotten irritable or I should have had a better perspective. Or at the very least, and I think this is probably going to be the most common thing we should just repair for, at the very least, we should be ready to repent and say, I'm sorry. I'm like to, to one of my boys, I'm sorry, kiddo. Uh, I'm stressed and that's my problem. That's not your problem. And, uh, and I snapped at you or I was short with you or whatever, you know. Um, and so I think if we have a readiness to just be humble and repentant as we navigate those things, um, you know, confessing our weakness, seeking obedience along the way, uh, I, I think that that's at least how we navigate those things that go south in ways that we, we didn't anticipate or hope. Uh, the sobering reality that makes it hard to obey God in these crossroads is that he doesn't speak to us in a conveniently clear and audible or even mental voice. We got to sort through this stuff. You know, and there may be uh, a small number of you out there that say, actually, I've heard from God in a clear, audible, or a mental voice. And there may be rare exceptions. But even in those cases, we should not make hard decisions based largely on what we think is God's voice in our minds. We need to bring any principles of Scripture that are relevant into our thought process, as well as scripturally wise, humble believers who know us and are living life alongside us in local relationships. Um, people living in our homes, you know, family, like our, like our spouses or friends that we meet with regularly, like accountability friend type relationships or mentor mentee type relationships. You know, if you, uh, if you have someone mentoring you, I think that's a great thing. Um, God is not going to lead us to do what he has commanded against in scripture and believers who are wise in scripture and are living life alongside us will be able to help us sort through these things in a way that most honors God, even as we lack all the knowledge that we'd really like to have. So I don't have any easy answers for you on this. I think I fail in this area a lot. Um, and uh, only someday standing before Jesus am I going to know how much. Because I really, sometimes it's just that, I'm just like, ah, I just second guess myself so much about this stuff. I don't know. I don't, I would love it to be clear cut for me. And it's not. And so um, I, I, I feel like just trying to discern that and be willing to be stretched and sacrifice and then just also be ready to have an attitude standing before Jesus of, yeah, this is why I need you, Jesus, because yeah, you're right. I missed all these things. I missed these things, you know? Um, you know, I I think we're all going to have moments like that standing before Jesus. I don't think it's, we're going to feel condemned at all. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We know that from scripture. But yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a, a mind-blowing moment of clarity. <laughs> I think in some ways like that will just be like I like I will just praise Jesus all the more in that moment cuz I'll be like, yeah, man, only you Jesus could have could discern through that. I did not have the discernment for that. And part of that's also my fault for not giving more of my life to developing discernment, you know? I mean, just uh, anyway, that's a whole different topic, but uh, those are the thoughts that that come to my mind, um, and uh, and then I, I told Justin I'd love to get an update on when you decide. He got back to me and said, "Well, I think we're suffering from having all this extra family time because of COVID, and now that things are starting to resume, we're feeling that change. Everything we do, we feel called to. As you know, I did not come to Christ thinking I'd be some sage of the faith, but God's led me to spiritual leadership. I personally have been convicted of our lack of hospitality and just feel like the pandemic created an easy excuse." 
I think we're going to continue God's, uh, I think we're going to continue. God's been training us to lead a church body one day. This looks like a good testing ground. Maybe God wants us to find this balance before we end up with the pressure of our own congregation. Thanks for your thoughts. They're always appreciated. And yeah, if you're going to go into any kind of church leadership, going hardcore into volunteering, you know, volunteer service uh, is a great way to prepare yourself for exactly that reason. Um, because, uh, there's just a lot more pressure and, uh, there's just a lot more pressure and a lot more time and energy that's required when you're actually, uh, serving in staff ministry. Um, I mean, at least that was my experience. And, and I see that in the, the, those who were pastoring other ministries when I was there and the pastors that I've remained close to, you know, in the years since that, uh, yeah. So that, that's a great observation. If, uh, if you're, if you're thinking of church leadership, like staff type stuff or church planting, even if you're just like volunteering, but you're part of, you know, a, a core group that's going to be church planting. That's huge. That's huge work. And I only know that secondhand. I can't imagine, you know, what more I might be able to react to firsthand. It's, but it's, I know <laughs> that it's uh, intense stuff. So yeah, yeah, it may be that this is, this is your intended testing ground. I don't know. I can certainly relate to your pull toward hospitality. Holly and I try to host whenever an opportunity presents itself because our house is well suited to it. Uh, but it's, it's always an effort. We're both introverts, uh, diff- introverts of different flavors, um, I, I'm more comfortable. I have a f- switch that I can flip to get in front of people and kind of like be the guy in front, you know? Um, but, uh, we would almost all the time much prefer to just be one-on-one with someone else or be by ourselves. Um, and so it's an effort to make the choice every time to like, Oh, here's an opportunity. Okay. You know, let's, let's volunteer to have the junior high swimming party at our house. Let's volunteer to have the, uh, um, the worship ministry, uh, dinner, you know, and, and night or whatever annual event at our house or, you know, whatever the thing might be. Um, but anyway, yeah, from what it's, from what you said, it sounds like you're making a wise and God honoring decision, Justin. Um, so thank you for inviting me into your process. Uh, feedback, feedback, guys, give me your thoughts. Strike up some chat on our forums at Christian Geek Central. Leave a comment at youtube.com slash Christian Geek Central or patreon.com slash Spirit Blade Productions. You type it, I read it. Might even share it on the show unless you tell me not to or want to be anonymous. That's fine, too. You can also email me a text or audio message at P-A-E-T-E-R at spiritblade.com. I would love to hear from you anytime and most any way. And as a reminder, if you'd like some help finding a good church in your area, I would love to help you do that if I can, even as I was fighting a burp and lost. You guys hear that? I'm sorry. Anyway, as I say each week, online resources and communities are good supplements, but by nature, they cannot speak to your particular situation like relationships in a local church can. The context for almost everything in the New Testament assumes that we're serving and building purposeful relationships in a local church. So whether you're in a church that lacks Bible-based intentionality, is just kind of going through the motions, is just steeped in, in ritual and, you know, nice things, uh, but things that are not biblically-based uh, intention. Um, then, uh, or maybe you're not attending any church at all. In either case, if I can help you get connected to an authentic, compassionate, Bible-oriented church, I would love to do that. My gosh, I would love for you to experience that. Email me, please, P-A-E-T-E-R at spiritblade.com, and we can try to look at some websites of churches in your area together. And now it's time for my Geek Week. Highlights of the geeky stuff that I have been up to. 
a bit of a list here. Let me actually pause for just a second and collect my thoughts. Okay. Um, Neverwinter MMO. Uh, I've been playing that. I mentioned, I think, think, think last week that I played it with uh, my friend Mark. Uh, and that was cool. I mean, it's... Uh, starting out, it is a bit simplistic in terms of, like, combat. You, you, there's not near as many opportunities to exercise other types of stats outside of those relevant to combat, at least yet. And I, I'm kind of suspecting that's going to continue to be the case. But, uh, you know, you're still in that D&D world, and that's kind of cool. And I thought I would tr- suggest it to my son, Asher, who's 14, because, uh, I, I mean... I've, in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, I want to start doing something with him now, get into some kind of habit now that can translate into online uh, video game playing when he moves out. Whether he just moves out and is on his own and working or whether he goes off to college, I don't know what the case will be, but I'm anticipating that, you know... uh, maybe immediately after graduating high school or maybe if you know a handful of years after that i don't know uh but i just want to start finding those those points of connection now and i was thinking some kind of like an online game either that's that's you know meant for online multiplayer or that's an mmo that we could also team up for and so neverwinter is available on all consoles basically i think switch as well i'm not sure actually certainly pc but uh it does not have does it have cross it doesn't have cross platform play i don't think maybe between like one console and pc or something like that but um anyway i realized you know i've got my ps5 downstairs and i and last christmas for the boys i put the ps4 upstairs in kind of a game loft area for them i bet that as long as he's logged in as him and i'm logged in as me that we could play even on the same internet connection um, with each other in, in, in the same house. And, and we, uh, a couple months ago, finally gave him a phone. And, um, and so we just got on the phone together. I'm down in my office, he's upstairs and we created characters and we're playing the Neverwinter MMO together. And it's really cool. You know, even having played the, the same quests that Asher and I played, you know, I played with Mark the week before or a few days before, but it was still fun to do it with Asher because, you know, he's my son. Um, and I actually anticipate, that he and I will probably play uh, more frequently than than Mark and I. I mean, we'll see. I mean, b- before long, one of the two pairings is going to outstrip the other, so that I won't be playing the same missions so close together as I as I have been. But uh, uh, but I don't think I don't know if he's completely sold on it yet uh, because I think that like what did he say? He said it's not it's not as good as Skyrim. You know, I'm like, well, yeah, no kidding, kid. <laughs> Um, but it is free to play, and you can play it online even without a PlayStation Plus subscription or uh, an Xbox Live Gold subscription. Both of those platforms allow you to play, I think, all free-to-play MMOs online for free. And so, uh, yeah, so that so that that was kind of like realizing that it's like, oh, I should try this with uh, should try this with Asher. So anyway, we're having a good time with that, but I'm thinking that maybe, and actually, let me actually move the order around here of, of in my notes of what I'm talking about, because this makes sense to, to go to this topic next. Um, the Elder Scrolls Online, I, uh, I got, because I'm thinking, 
you know, if he doesn't like this, I already have a $1 copy, used copy from GameStop of just the core game for PlayStation 4, uh, Elder Scrolls, uh, Tamriel Unlimited. And so I thought I could get a second copy of that. Actually, what I decided to do was, um, let's see. Oh, no, no, I, I got it. I was also thinking for Mark in case, like, we fizzled out on Dungeons and & Dragons and lost interest in that. Uh, that that I could maybe explore it uh, on that platform as well. What I didn't know, and it was on sale. It was on sale because of a, a sale going on 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 uh, the Xbox Store. Is that although you don't need PlayStation Plus to play Elder Scrolls Online on PlayStation, you do need a Gold subscription to play online on Xbox. That is so backwards to me. I'm like, what the crap? Seriously, you guys. I'm I'm thinking at some point they got to get rid of that. They own Bethesda now, um, and you'd think they would want that to be the place where that game is played. I mean, I suppose if they're making money and it, and they don't feel like it's stopping people from playing it on that platform, then you know that makes sense. And it, let's be clear, it's my fault for not doing due diligence to make absolutely sure I did not need Xbox Live Gold. Um, it, I was just seeing it as I was researching MMOs to play with Mark. It was just seeming to be the standard for MMOs that uh, um, that, that you didn't need these subscriptions anymore. Um, but crap, I was wrong. So, hey, Bethesda just got eight bucks and change for free from me. They just get to have that. <laughs> uh, and they had a thing, and I didn't bother trying to get a refund or anything like that because they have a very clear message during checkout, no refunds, you know. All right. That's, that's my fault. That's my bad. Love you, Bethesda. Take that and run with it and do good things because, you know, I want you to do good things. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, so I, I've been playing around with Elder Scrolls Online a bit, uh, especially since Asher said that Neverwinter's not like Skyrim. Like, well, maybe, maybe Elder Scrolls then. And I am finding, uh, just as I'm playing early missions by myself, that... It is more like Skyrim. Like I, I played a, I made a character a while back on PS4 um, that was just a wizard class, and I, I, it had a totally different intro. Whatever the intro is now, it's it's totally changed. Uh, like the intro scenario, or maybe it was like something I chose about my character that started it with a different intro. I have no idea. But anyway, um, the game seems to have changed since I tried it about a year ago or less. Totally different opening scenario, and there's a lot more loot like Neverwinter has very little loot to speak of the, the loot that you get, you get coins while you're out fighting bad guys and monsters and stuff. You can pick up coin drops, but there's not really like equipment drops, but freaking in elder scrolls, uh, there's all kinds of containers you can open up that at least have stuff that I presume I'll be able to use for crafting. And I've had other bits of equipment and stuff like that. I'm like, Oh crap. This it, it just in general feels like a world that I can interact with a lot more than I can in Neverwinter. Not as much as Skyrim, not as much as a true blue single player Bethesda RPG. Certainly not. But uh, more than more than Neverwinter, and more than you know what I've experienced playing DC Universe Infinite or DC Universe Online. Sorry, DC Universe Online. Um, so Elder Scrolls Online seems to have kind of a good thing going on. And not only that, but when I got into it, it defaulted to a first person perspective. That is not how it used to be. You had to kind of like go into your settings and and change it to try and create that first person Skyrim vibe. 
but they must have figured out that, you know what, if we want to get the more casual players uh, who maybe are familiar with Skyrim, we should make some adjustments to this to make it as freaking, freaking Skyrim-y as possible. And that's that's the, the sense I get from the choices they made there. And it's totally playable so far without a, any kind of significant disadvantage in combat uh, in first person. So, yeah, it, I've not spent a lot of time in it, but uh, uh, it's definitely one that I, I think I would jump into if Asher or my friend Mark started to kind of cool off in their interest in Neverwinter. So... Um, I've definitely been spending time with Far Cry, Far Cry 6, excuse me. I've put over five hours into it now, but as I, I think I said earlier, I, I just want to spend some more time in it. There's some, there's a, I'm still getting introduced to, um, systems in the game and, and mostly like activities, things I can go out and do and find and, and resources I can hunt down so that I can acquire, so I can upgrade base camps and stuff like that. So it's similar. It has those similar kinds of systems from Far Cry 5, but it feels like more. And I did, I, you know, I usually, I don't want to say usual. I think it's been slowly changing. But I, uh, many times I do not look at reviews that other people make for games that I'm planning on reviewing myself. But other times I will, you know, just to kind of get, maybe collect some data. Not, you know, it doesn't persuade me to hold their opinion because... That's I usually have a very different view from a lot of people who do <laughs> very popular reviews, um, but uh, but but there is there does seem to be some consensus that there is a lot of systems going on, um, and I think that what other reviewers are saying is that it's a bit much. I don't know that that's how I'm going to feel about it, because uh, a lot of these other reviewers are saying you know they they just and they did this with Far Cry Five also. I just feel like with Ubisoft games, they get a lot of crap in in the big outlet reviews for not changing things up. And I'm like, but if it ain't broke, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sometimes. And you know, the one review did acknowledge that it's still, um, you know, it's it's um, it's Ubisoft comfort food, you know. And I'm like, yeah, sometimes that you know, you're you're saying like, well, at the end of the day, at least it's this. And I'm like, for some of us, that is the main selling point of a Ubisoft open world action game, whether that's Ghost Recon Breakpoint or Far Cry or um, Assassin's Creed, you know? Uh, We want that comfort food, you know? So that's what I'm looking out for is there's stuff that gets in the way of the comfort food, you know? I don't don't really need them to super innovate a ton. Um, They can just kind of iterate, uh, and, and I think so far that's what I'm seeing they're doing is they're making some slight iterations. It's a different location. It's similar in some significant ways to Far Cry 3's location, but I mean, not, it's, it's not that big of a deal to me. It's, I would play, you know, if I would play another Far Cry 3 game, if it was, if they just changed the map, if all the foliage looked the same, it had all the same enemies and monsters, but it was just a new map, a new look, you know, like a different, different geography, same climate, same jungly type climate and everything. If you just g- gave me a different different island that they're on in that same part of the world, that's that's great to me. That's great to me. And and it and Far Cry Six is is more varied from Far Cry Three than that. It's definitely you know more different than that. But um, yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll share the rest of my thoughts in my review next week. But bottom line, I'm having a good time. Um, you know, I'm I'm not in cover, in, encountering yet bugs or design issues that are getting in the way of my fun 
Um, and so I'm anticipating that will continue, but I do want to give it a little more time just to see if there's some systems that manifest or some changes or gameplay design things that manifest that like, go, oh crap, I just need to, I mean, I just need to run into one story mission that has like a timer on it or that I got to keep some dumb NPC alive for, and that will be, that'll be very significant. But I'm, I'm hopeful that that won't be the case because I feel like Ubisoft has realized players don't want that uh, and they find that annoying based on the the gameplay decisions they've made in their other franchises like Assassin's Creed Odyssey um, and um, Ghost Recon uh, Breakpoint um, compared to the games that came before them in those series even. Um, So yeah, yeah. So uh, Shakedown Hawaii. This is a game I'm probably going to play during my Game Save Marathon. It's a uh, it's a little retro pixel art game, top down, inspired by the old top down Grand Theft Auto games. But I feel like the spirit of it is much more Saints Row. It's uh, it's definitely I mean it's almost well I was going to say almost it is never intending to be intended to be taken seriously. Where I feel like especially recent Grand Theft Auto games, there are elements of those that are, you know, intended to be taken seriously and dramatically, you know, uh, that are grounded. And Shakedown Hawaii is not. It is much more like Saints Row 3. Not as bonkers as 4. It's much more like Saints Row 3. And that's really cool because I love Saints Row 3. And I really enjoyed Saints Row 2. And and I enjoyed a ton about Saints Row 4. So coming at this and like, oh, this is kind of like the portable open world game I've always wanted to find. And... It's uh, it's also like Saints Row in that it um, I don't remember if I selected a difficulty at the beginning or not. If I did, I would have selected easy, the easiest difficulty. That's what I default to. But whatever the case may be, I'm not finding my I'm not finding it too difficult. It's very casual, open world, fun, mayhem, and the story is about this corrupt businessman who was big in the '80s. But now his whole business model, he kind of sat on his laurels for too long and his his entire business empire has fallen apart and he essentially has to rebuild it from scratch. But he is such a sleazy guy and he's just using all these um, these these uh, un- underhanded, is that the word? I mean, morally questionable methods of marketing to people and um, f- tricking people into buying stuff that's actually crap, you know, and... and f- uh, the, the way it gets Saints Rowy is that you're trying to you're in Hawaii and you're trying to just corner the market in Hawaii, and so that means <laughs> that means you have to go and threaten these other legitimate businesses with harm <laughs> and force them to pay you protection money, um, and while also hampering their business. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's crazy. I mean, the, the logic of it is nuts. But there are all there are tons of these interstitial, um, animated uh, cutscenes that are. I mean, it's very slight animation. It's it's mostly still pictures, and they'll animate the face or the mouth or something like that, or or the shoulders will bounce up and down or something like that. If you've played the late 80s and mid 90s era of PC games any of those kinds of games it's similar to animation you would expect from those types of games it's very charming i find um but but there's like there's a really generous amount of these things and there's still i mean i've played this game not a ton um it's kind of become my bedtime game um which is probably not a good idea because 
uh, I, it doesn't settle my mind in the same way that a book does. I can kind of like read a few, a chapter or two of a book. And then at some point I start checking out and I realize, okay, now is the time. Pull the trigger, turn the light off and go to sleep. Cause I need something to settle my mind, um, in order to, to, to fall asleep. And this, this doesn't settle my mind. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's kind of become my bedtime game. And so at a single stretch, I may be playing 20 to 30 minutes at a time, but total time invested now is probably at least a few hours. And even a few hours in, uh, it's, it's revealing new activities in the world that I can do. Um, I haven't, uh, I, I just, for the first time, reached a point where I was like, oh, I might need to go out into the world and do some of these activities to earn money so that I can continue in the story. That's something that very often happens in Saints Row. Uh, but right now, so far, I'm finding that I haven't had to take a break and go and kind of quote-unquote grind open-world activities, which I would honestly be happy to do. Um, but I'm just still burning, like going straight through story missions because I haven't had a, a reason to stop and upgrade myself in order to get through. Um, hopefully I don't find that like the story ends. I think, you know what? I think even if the story were to j- suddenly end and I'd be surprised, oh my gosh, I didn't know. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't have used the easiest difficulty or whatever. And again, I don't even know if there's difficulty settings in the game. I don't remember, but, um, but I mean, I, I would still, if the story mode ended, I realized, oh, I've kind of quote unquote finished the game. I would be happy to then just spend a lot of time grinding out activities for a while. I'm I'm just having a good time in that game. I kind of hit I kind of hit that sweet spot of familiarity that I haven't yet reached with say Far Cry 6. Um where like uh that you know I don't know if you experience this but like when I have a new game even if I really really been anticipating it most times it's not the game I mainline right away because there's just that learning curve where it's not quite familiar, still trying to figure things out, and I only want to be in that mode playing for so long during my free time before getting into something that I'm already familiar with, I already know I enjoy, and I can just jump in, and it's comfort food, right? Um, and so, but I, I'm in that comfort food space now with Shakedown Hawaii and having a really good time. Uh, and then one more video game before I talk about some movies here. Uh, Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. I found last night i mean this always seems to happen as i'm getting closer to these annual 24-hour marathons that i do um i uh have you guys noticed i've I've really been doing good at not referring to the upcoming marathon as extra life i i, I think i've been doing pretty good <laughs> uh but anyway yeah as i'm anticipating uh my game save marathon uh i'm feeling an itch for a a, a symphony like a game that is modeled after uh, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, Night, not a mere Metroidvania, but one that has those RPG systems that Symphony of the Night has. I always start feeling an itch for that kind of experience about this time of year. Really weird. Uh, and I don't have a new one to go to, which is a bummer. But I haven't played Bloodstained Ritual of the Night in a couple of years. I mean, since it came out and I and I played it through. And so I think I'm ready to play it through again and honestly enjoy it as a pretty fresh experience. I think I've forgotten enough about the experience before to to get back into it now. Um, And uh, I did look for some New Game Plus options. There are some neat New Game Plus options, but one of them is a boss rush mode. One of them is a, a classic mode, which basically just constructs some classic style levels out of the art assets for uh for bloodstained 
And I don't want to play that because it takes away the XP grind and all those kinds of systems. It makes it like a punishing old school Castlevania game. I was like, oh, so classic mode holds nothing for me. Uh, boss rush mode, I'm not interested in that. I, I want like a like a full new game plus type thing. Um, and there are, there are two options. You know, you've got a hard mode that you can do where you bring all your equipment and your levels in with you. And I wish there was a way to to choose one or the other, like just my equipment or just my levels and up the difficulty to hard mode um, because I find it too easy. E- even, well, you know what? Even Even in hard mode, I went in and tried it out and I just started with nothing. You know, I just stripped off all of my equipment. I'm like, let's see how I navigate in this world without anything. And I still felt too strong in hard mode. In nightmare mode, uh, I started thinking, oh, okay, yeah, this is this is maybe closer to what I want. But it starts you out with all of your equipment, but with at level one. <laughs> and you can't gain any levels. That that's where the laughter came from. Sorry, I didn't I didn't make that clear before I started chuckling about it. You can't gain levels. You stay at level one. And so that makes it entirely equipment-based. And, uh, hmm, I dismissed it last night. Now I'm thinking maybe I should give it another try. Maybe that would be the sweet spot of challenge. I don't know. I don't know. There's a randomizer mode, but it it doesn't randomize the layout of the whole game, which is kind of what I hoped and what I think a lot of people assumed was going to be true of the randomizer mode. But instead, it just puts various items that you can find in different places. And I don't know. So at the end of the day, maybe I'll give that nightmare mode with all my equipment carrying over another try and see what I think of that. But, but the thing is with these games, it's the, it's the grind and the growth of your character. That is such a big part of the appeal to me, both in terms of the levels you gain and in terms of the equipment that you gain. I mean, it is that that's an awesome, awesome formula that most Metroidvanias don't actually employ. They're just content to just be Metroid like, and I don't know where the Vania is factoring in, Um, but they're really just Metroid likes. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, I thought maybe I'll give that another try, but I I think I might really miss the uh, leveling up aspect and I'm not sure how much more equipment there is for me to craft or find that's going to satisfy that, that loot and that upgrading thing. I'll, I'll do a little research. Um, so Next week, I'll either have that to talk about or I won't mention it all and you'll know that I, it didn't work out and I moved on. <laughs> um, okay, so movies. I watched uh, almost all of the Saw movies this uh, this last week. After, as I mentioned last week, the, uh, watching the Escape Room movies, I was really disappointed in the second one and just lost interest in that franchise entirely. But it did give me an itch to you know watch people try to escape from puzzles that are going to kill them. <laughs> And so I I thought I had only seen the first three Saw movies and gave up after watching the third one. I discovered in rewatching them that I had actually seen the first four. Um, and f- at the end of four, I'm going to try not to spoil this. There's a character that they introduce in the second movie that seems like they're going to be a recurring character and a vital part of the, the franchise going forward. And they end up not being that. Um, and I was really disappointed because I thought they were interesting. A really interesting character. Especially since, uh, which, you know, this is a minor spoiler about the the first, but you learn this in the first Saw movie. 
that the um that the that the the killer is is dying um and so he has this fixation on helping other people appreciate their lives because he himself is dying and and learned because of his brush with death how precious life is and so it's a really uh, great premise for that first movie um but anyway well let me talk about that let me talk about that actually and then i'll come back to the, the new characters that were introduced and just how the series tanked um the premise is so cool because there's a there's there's a a self-righteousness in the mind of Jigsaw the killer where he's really in his mind trying to help people and there are some things he believes that are true that are good that are virtuous but he's just you know obviously screwed up and got things wrong morally in many many other ways um but the like the the choice that was posed to people in the first movie he he really doesn't want to kill them he just he just that that's kind of like what he falls back on it's like it's so important in his mind that people learn to value their lives that if they don't then they might as well die you know uh but really what he wants them to do is to value their lives and so that's one component that is missing after probably about maybe even as early as the fourth movie uh, the third or fourth movie, it really starts to go out the window. Uh, and it's like, wait a minute, he's bringing freaking innocent people into his games that are, that are at risk and do in fact die, um, just so that he can teach this other person a lesson. Well, if this person fails at their moral lesson, then this innocent person dies. And yes, it creates tension, um, for the person that's actually going through the puzzle, but the other person that's trapped that's going to die if they fail to go if the, if the 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 actually the person in question fails to do the puzzle that other person is innocent it's innocent if you value life i mean it doesn't make any sense his whole motive just goes out the window when you go deeper into that series and the other thing that's missing later on is uh the emotional tension the emotional suspense um, I mean, this just happens in a lot of sequels. They, they, they figure we need to go. I mean, this, this happened in, um, escape room. This is early as the second movie. They, they realize that with a sequel, we need to do something different and probably we need to do something bigger and better or more intense or whatever than the last one. That's actually not always true, but I think many times it is, um, and so they're right to think that, but they, but what they go for is just more explosions instead of taking the story itself in a direction that is more intense, more intriguing. In the first movie, the, the choice that, that a character faces is they need to do horrible, painful harm to themselves um, or... Uh, their family is in trouble. Oh, wait a minute. Huh, that's interesting. I just realized now that even in the first Saw movie, there were innocent people at stake. So I guess that's just an inconsistency from the beginning in Jigsaw's character. But it just became more and more obvious when you went through the rest of the movies. Anyway, um, so the the tension is not always of like, should am I willing to do this so that I will survive? Yes, that, I mean, I think that's a valid that's a valid kind of point of tension, but 
Uh, I think it's more interesting when you bring some other emotional thing, like someone I care about, something could happen to them, you know? Um, and they, I, I just feel like they established the emotional connection of these characters to their quandary in the first movie. Um, and after that, they, it, well, they introduce more characters, more people involved in traps all at the same time. So the more characters you introduce as victims, the less time you can spend on each one. That first movie, a lot of it is these two guys in a room for the whole movie. And so you really kind of get to know them and kind of what drives them. And it was really interesting. That first Saw movie, I would still highly recommend to horror fans. It's, it's a great movie. Um, and they just, they, they, they lost what was really, I think, special about that. Uh, at the beginning of, I want to say like the sixth one, the fifth or sixth one, they had these characters start out in a trap it's like, you know, here's the trap. Here you have 60 seconds. And then suddenly they're just they're just freaking out and they're having to like cut their limbs off or cut big chunks out of themselves. It happens too fast. It happens too fast. In that first Saw movie, they spent so much... There was a clock, but the clock was hours away. And so they had time for the ramifications of their potential failure in this puzzle to, to gnaw at them. And for them to think, you know, and for them to try things that were half-hearted, like, okay, well, clearly he wants me to do this, but that's too extreme. There's got to be another way other than that, that I can get out of this situation. So they're slowly over time realizing inevitably they're funneled back to this one horrid option that they have to commit to in order to get out of this situation, you know, and man, that builds the suspension and the ten the tension and the uh the drama is just so much more intense when they do that instead of okay here we we're seeing these characters for the first time a recording comes on you haven't been valuing your lives now you have 60 seconds to cut limbs off if you want to survive and then they're like oh what the crap ah you know you you lose the sense of their pain emotionally and even physically it's just like what what they they wouldn't even have 60 in that 60 seconds i'm not even sure if you would have time to process like is this really the only option you know i mean you're just i'm just not feeling i'm just the suspense is gone and then um in the fourth or fifth movie they introduce a character that really becomes the focus instead of jigsaw and this this character is so uninteresting to me he his motivations are you know unclear and then even when they're revealed i'm just like he's not as interesting i mean jigsaw's premise and motivation as a guy who's dying and has learned to appreciate life and wants others to appreciate life that's so twisted and weird and in some ways relatable and and then the guy that was basically introduced to kind of replace him so uninteresting and um i I don't know what that actor is honestly capable of i've never seen him in anything else but just performance-wise, I was not connecting with him at all. And that really became the case with a lot of the performances starting with the fourth movie or so. And I did a little digging and found that they basically, uh, the original creators, of course, you know, were phasing out of their involvement. And uh, they got, you know, new creators in, one of whom it was their first feature film. It's like, yeah, this obviously is your first feature film. You know, it felt like they really, starting with four or five, and there's seven of these things in the main series. 
they looked like TV movies. They, they, I can't even put my finger, I wish I knew, I wish I knew what it was I was seeing that was giving off that vibe. It was like the cinematography, something about the cinematography was just so standard and normal um, and simplistic and not artful in the way that where they would place the camera. I think it had something to do with that. And the lighting maybe too, I, I don't know. But I was like, this is weird. No wonder they could put these out every year and people didn't get sick of them enough that they, they needed to kill the franchise. They just started putting less money into them, both in terms of who they hired to be in them and, uh, and in the, the production process. Uh, it just clearly seemed to be, well, that's why it was quote-unquote accessible. Uwe Boll, the guy who uh, used to make video game movies, and they were all you know horribly responded to by, by people who saw them. He is actually a, a very successful director because he makes those movies for a really small amount of money and they uh, and they are very profitable just because of the, the intellectual property of the game. That, that brings enough butts to seats that it's like, wow, this was greatly pro- popular. So even though people hate that director, he is sought after by studios that want to make a quick buck, you know? And so I think that's what was going on with Saw. They're just like, okay... Uh, we can do this and people that are just into B horror movies will stick with it. And, and there will be enough of those people that they can be profitable if we make them at this budget. You know, I, I think that's what was going on anyway. Um, the last one of the main series was made in 2010. And then just last night I started watching Jigsaw, which came out in 2017. So they had a seven year break and it does seem like they're putting more effort into this. The cinematography is definitely better. I don't think that's just because film as an art advanced in those seven years all that much. No, I think that they are putting more money into it. Uh, they, there was some more interesting actors involved, more convincing actors. The tension was better. Still nowhere near as good as that first Saw movie. Maybe not even as good as the second one. Uh, and I'm only halfway through it. Um, and they're doing some interesting things teasing the idea that Jigsaw is actually not dead. Um, And that's what would have been so much more interesting to me, is if Jigsaw was revealed to be just this brilliant human being who, um, like, prepared for so many crazy scenarios that even after he's dead, there's a domino effect remaining of traps that he set up um, that, uh, that are still playing out. I, I think there is something really captivating about that idea. And that's not the direction they went with. They had, you know, somebody replacing him and, but, but in Jigsaw, I'm wondering, oh, okay, maybe our name, maybe now they're going to do that kind of thing. Um, and with it being called Jigsaw named after the, the original killer himself, I'm like, okay, well, we'll see. We'll see. I'll probably finish it up uh, tonight or um, or over the weekend. Um, and then I still haven't seen Spiral, uh, which I may watch if I like Jigsaw enough. Uh, it, Spiral is co- like Spiral from the Book of Saw. And it's got that, um, gosh, what is the name? Chris Rock. It's got Chris Rock in it, uh, who's known for his comedic work, you know, and really not for drama at all. Uh, but here he is in this movie. I'm really curious to see what his performance will be like in that. But I mean, I didn't even want to bother with that movie 
when I hadn't kept up with any of the rest of the franchise. And so now that I have kind of seen my way through it, um, which was only possible because after about the third movie or so, I just put it on a second smaller screen and was playing video games and just kind of tracking with the plot. I was like, this is so not worth my full attention. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm going to finish up Jigsaw and uh, then maybe I'll watch Spiral. Uh, but for now, that's my Geek Week. That's it for this week, guys. Stay tuned after the credits for B5 Shawarma with Adam David Collings, commenting episode by episode on one of his favorite sci-fi shows, Babylon 5. Or you can jump back to episode 575 if you want to start at the beginning. Uh, next week, if God allows it, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's lots of possibilities. It's probably going to be a packed show either way. But something, I think, one or two things are, are almost certainly going to have to fall off until the week after. Uh, Far Cry 6, I'm planning on reviewing. And then, as I think I mentioned a week or two ago, uh, my, my, my commitment now to mostly reviewing movies as they come to home video is kind of like catching up with me in a weird way. Uh, like, all these movies are coming at once. We've got Snake Eyes, G.I. Joe Origins, which I, I did not see. I opted to see something else in theaters when that came out. Um, we've got Injustice, the animated DC movie, which I'm definitely interested in seeing. Even though I don't have any interest in the games, the premise and the storyline, which I know some of them have had some exposure to, I'm very interested in. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan's Old if one of them were to get bumped, that that's probably the first one that would get bumped. Um, but then also there's the premiere of the new Hulu, oh no, not Hulu, Apple TV Plus series Invasion, uh, which looks like it also is getting a really nice budgetary treatment. I, I thought Foundation was, you know, in the previews looking pretty good. And, you know, even when it came out, even though it didn't look as good as the, the trailer I saw, uh, it still had a really solid, you know, uh, streaming premium quality look to it. And I, and Invasion, it looks like, is similarly going to have some real nice money thrown at it. And I think maybe some recognizable good actors, too. I can't remember if that's what I saw in the trailer or not. But, you know, Invasion, I'm going to check out the premiere to that, I'm pretty sure. And then Dune is coming to uh, HBO Max and theaters next Friday. And I uh, definitely plan to uh, to review that. Um so yeah we'll see what gets bumped but those are kinds of the things swimming around in my mind right now as I think about next week till then please consider supporting the work of Christian Geek Central and Spirit Blade Productions and earning some fun rewards by becoming a Spirit Blade insider of any subscription tier at patreon.com slash Productions. I'd also be grateful for positive reviews wherever you find this podcast and as I said earlier just telling people um, I, I need you guys to do that I do not know the secret sauce to uh, help this content reach a wider audience um, but I I here again and again when people discover CGC content. Wow, where was this? I'm so glad I found this. Um, so I need you guys. Uh, you are the secret sauce. You really are the secret sauce uh, to helping uh, Christian Geek Central grow. So positive reviews and sharing this with other people, I'd be really, really grateful for. Thank you so much also for making time for this show. I know you've got a lot of other things that you could be putting in your ears, and uh, I, I really appreciate you giving me a listen. I hope you have a great week, and that you'll join me next time here on the Christian Geek Central podcast as we continue to geek out and seek the truth. What? The Christian Geek Central Podcast is a community-supported endeavor of Spirit Blade Productions. This podcast is produced by Peter Fremson with support from the Christian Geek Central community at ChristianGeekCentral.com. For information about the latest entertainment and resources from Spirit Blade Productions, visit SpiritBlade.com. Thank you for listening.
all back the way that it was. Nothing's the same anymore. Why don't you eliminate the entire non-homeworld? Stand between the darkness and the light. Now my own government wants to kill me. Being a freedom fighter is a wonderful thing, but the pay sucks. Now get the hell out of our galaxy! We are here to place President Clark under arrest. We talked about peace! You didn't want peace! Who do you serve? And who do you trust? We live for the one, we die for the one. But we don't die stupidly. And that was In the Kingdom of the Blind. The description on the Lurker's Guide reads, Byron's telepaths present the Interstellar Alliance with an ultimatum. Londo and his bodyguard visit Centauri Prime. And this episode first aired on the 18th of March, 1998. When Season 5 of Babylon 5 was airing in Australia, I was doing my honours year at university. I had my own private desk in the postgraduate office. We didn't have many lectures. Most of the work was our own personal research, so we could manage our own time. Babylon 5 was on at 11pm on a Thursday night. I'd start the VCR recording and go to bed. Next morning, I'd watch the episode while I ate my breakfast. It was a great way to start my Friday. After watching, I'd drive into university to do some work, but the first thing I always did when I sat down at my computer was log on to Usenet. It was kind of a precursor to web forums. There was a group called oz.sf.babylon5. It was a lot of fun to see what other Aussies who were watching thought of the latest episode. I loved reading everyone's thoughts and maybe sharing a couple of my own. Once we reached this point of the season, there was something of an unofficial wager going on in the group. No money involved. But everyone was guessing how many episodes it would be until Byron was martyred. It seemed pretty obvious to everyone that it was inevitable. So what do you think? The season 5 arc is in full swing. Garibaldi has learned that ships are being attacked by what appear to be raiders, except they're being blown up with the cargo still on board. And they're being done with military precision. Someone out there is up to some pretty dodgy business. Meanwhile, Londo is back on Centauri Prime with Jakar in tow. Naturally, the ministers back home assume Jakar is a slave for Londo's amusement. It must have been so satisfying for Jakar when Londo announces him as his bodyguard. There are some strange goings-on in the royal court. The regent has been unwell and doesn't want to see anyone. Those who see him unofficially claim he's losing his mind even asking a guard to kill him. He's been regularly drunk, which is odd because the regent doesn't drink. And then there's the matter of the Centauri fleet, details about which are suddenly classified. The keen-eyed will notice a lot of things being put in place here, hints of things you already know if you're paying attention. This is one of those episodes that has a lot of replay value the second time round. And then Lord Jano is killed. One of the Centauri aristocrats is deeply offended by Jakar's presence. In an attempt to prove that none are barbarians, he offers Jakar the fate of the guard who whipped him under Kataja last season. Jakar, of course, extends grace to the guard. The blame was with Kataja, not the guard who was ordered to wield the whip. That aristocrat tries to assassinate Londo, but his life is saved by an alien. Do you recognise that race? It looks very much like the Drak that met with Delenn last season, just without the dodgy blur effect. The Regent tries his best to warn Londo of what is going on, but Londo doesn't understand. If we ever doubted it, 
Now we have proof that the regent is being controlled by a keeper. We know that in the future, Londo will also have one. And then we get confirmation that it is the Centauri ships under the command of the regent that are attacking the League worlds. So, meanwhile back on Babylon 5, we get a quick little recap. Byron is enraged that the telepaths were created by the Vorlons as weapons against the Shadows. That war is now over, and Lita insists that there is no one left to blame. Byron is not so sure. So he has his people follow all his ambassadors and read their deepest, most private secrets. And then he threatens to blackmail, unless the Alliance give them a homeworld of their own. Now, I don't blame Byron for wanting a safe world where free telepaths can live, and I admire his non-violent ways. But what he is doing is a violation, an act of violence against the mind rather than the body. And this is his opening move. He doesn't even try to ask nicely. Admittedly, Sheridan's initial response shows that asking nicely would have accomplished nothing. Byron is using what I think of as terrorist tactics, threats. You make demands, and if those demands are not met, you threaten consequences. I do not like this kind of behaviour. Any small amount of respect I had for Byron has just evaporated like water on a hot barbecue plate. Now, leave it to Delenn to see the telepath's point of view. Delenn is a fair-minded person if ever I saw one. Sheridan accuses Byron of doing things the wrong way, the inconvenient way, which is exactly what President Lushenka accused him of doing after he freed Earth from Clark. So, is what the telepaths are asking for reasonable? Is there a reason Sheridan can't give them a homeworld? Is there another way Byron could have gone about this? What do you think? And then, of course, things turn violent. How could they not... Some Drazi beat a telepath, trying to find out what secrets he knows. And then the telepaths go to fight back. Byron's people are now actively using violence against the Drazi. Honestly, Byron, what did you think was going to happen? Now, the one thing that I'm not really sure this episode makes clear enough is um, the difficulty of giving them a homeworld. Like, the, the mere mention of the possibility, Sheridan just goes right off, Byron, that is not going to happen! But they don't really explain why. Now, you can think about the fact that, you know, a planet is, is a big thing. Um, it's probably worth a lot. You know, there, there's probably economic reasons why this is a very big ask. But, I don't know, I just thought that they could have uh, explored that a little bit and just clarified Sheridan's position. Anyway... Things are getting pretty bad, and they're only going to get worse. I'll see you next week for A Tragedy of Telepaths. It was a lot of fun to see what other Aussies who were watching through the latest episodes... Oh, for goodness sake. After I'd finished watching, I'd drive into university to do some work. But... Now, once we reached this point in the season, there was something of an utter... There are some strange going-ons at the... Any small amount of respect I had for Byron has just evaporated like what 